Did you know Charles Darwin suffered from the disease of lupus? He suffered from narcolepsy, too. Plus, middle ear damage, pigeon allergies, agoraphobia, chronic fatigue syndrome, an adrenal gland tumor, Chagas disease, and something called smoldering hepatitis. <laughs> At least, that's what modern-day medical sleuths want you to believe. These sleuths are mostly doctors and medical historians, and they published scores of papers over the years trying to retroactively diagnose Charles Darwin with every one of those ailments. Their goal was to try and solve the mystery of why the father of modern biology was so sickly during his lifetime. You see, Darwin did suffer chronic poor health. His symptoms included boils, fainting fits, head flutters, numb fingers, insomnia, migraines, dizziness, eczema, and what he called fiery spokes and dark clouds that hovered before his eyes. The strangest symptom was a ringing in the ears, after which, like thunder follows lightning, Darwin always passed horrendous gas. But above all, Darwin barfed. He barfed after breakfast, after lunch, after tea time, whenever. And he kept barfing until he was dry heaving. In peak form, Darwin vomited 20 times an hour. He once vomited 27 days running. Oddly, mental exertion always made the nausea and gas worse. And even Darwin, who was the most intellectually creative biologist who ever lived, could make no sense of why this was. What thought has to do with digesting roast beef, he once sighed, I cannot say. But modern-day doctors and medical historians think that they can say. They think they can diagnose Darwin at a remove of 150 years. But as we'll see, their track record, and not only for Darwin, but for Hitler and Lincoln and many more historical celebrities, is dubious at best and outright dangerous at worst. From the Science History Institute, this is Sam Keen and the Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. Poor health upended Charles Darwin's entire existence. It often prevented him from attending scientific conferences or even visiting other people's homes for fear of fouling their privies. Darwin claimed he never wrote for more than 20 minutes without a stabbing pain somewhere. And he missed several cumulative years of work with various ailments. Darwin even grew out his famous beard partly to soothe the itchy eczema that plagued his face. Something, then, was clearly wrong with Darwin. But nailing down exactly what has proved a mug's game. That list of potential diagnoses I read at the start of the episode is almost comical in its range. It veers from autoimmune diseases to viral infections to cancer to mental disorders and beyond. Part of the problem in retrodiagnosing Darwin is that it's not clear which of his long list of symptoms are important and which are red herrings. Or perhaps he suffered from multiple afflictions at once. The truth is, no one really knows what Charles Darwin suffered from. And unless new historical evidence comes to light, we likely never will. 
But that hasn't stopped doctors and historians from taking a fresh stab every few years. And Darwin is hardly alone in being put under a medical microscope. There's a veritable industry out there of people trying to pin diseases and disorders on historical celebrities. Frederick Chopin was posthumously diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Fyodor Dostoevsky with epilepsy. Edgar Allan Poe with rabies. Jane Austen with adult chickenpox. Vlad the Impaler with porphyria. John F. Kennedy with Addison's disease. Alexander the Great with Ebola, of all things. Nor have scholars shied away from psychological disorders. Vincent van Gogh is seemingly being diagnosed with half of the DSM. I have even seen fictional characters analyzed. Doctors have competently diagnosed Ebenezer Scrooge with OCD. Sherlock Holmes got diagnosed with autism. And Darth Vader? Borderline personality disorder. And actually, that last one's not so bad. Many psychologists also play a variation of this game. Instead of diagnosing figures from history, they sometimes diagnose prominent figures from afar in their own lifetimes, especially politicians. But their track record is no less spotty. The most egregious example of dumb diagnoses involves Adolf Hitler. During World War II, U.S. intelligence was handled by the OSS, or Office of Strategic Services. OSS was the chaotic, freewheeling predecessor of the CIA. Now, the OSS commissioned multiple reports on Adolf Hitler's mental state, and long passages of them read like a parody of Freudian psychobabble. One analyst speculated that Hitler was erotically attracted to his mother and feared that his father would castrate him. Why? Because he claimed that Hitler must have discovered his parents during intercourse once, despite there being zero evidence for this ever happening. The analyst then concluded that, and I apologize in advance for this image, that Hitler must derive sexual gratification from the act of having a woman urinate or defecate on him. Again, there is zero evidence for this. Even worse, though, the analyst then links this bogus idea to Hitler's hatred for Jews. He claimed that Hitler's hatred grew directly from his shame over his scatological fetishes. In short, the analyst said that Hitler hated how unclean his desires made him feel. And then he somehow projected that self-loathing onto the Jewish people. Hence the Holocaust. In addition to being ridiculous logic, conclusions like this ignore the political, social, and historical context that fueled Hitler's rise to power. It's an absurd simplification. In this analyst's view, one pervert comes to power, and the final solution is the inevitable result. It is utter hogwash. But this idiocy did not stop the OSS from acting on this quote-unquote intelligence. One of the OSS's most colorful characters was Stanley Lovell. Lovell was basically a real-life version of Q from the James Bond franchise. His job consisted of puttering around in a lab and just thinking up cool spy gadgets. To take a few examples, Lovell and his lab mates developed bombs that looked like mollusks to attach to ships. They crafted shoes with secret cavities to conceal documents. They invented pencils and cigarettes that shot bullets. 
They even devised an explosive powder that had the consistency of flour and that could be mixed with water and even baked into biscuits and eaten without any danger. Only when ignited with a fuse did the powder explode. For all his genius, though, Stanley Lovell bought completely into the Freudian nonsense about Adolf Hitler. Lovell declared to the OSS chief that Hitler straddled, quote, the male-female gender line, and that he might therefore be pushed from one to the other. Accordingly, Lovell isolated some feminine hormones from animal products to give to Hitler. He decided the best way to deliver them would be injecting the hormones into the beets and carrots in Hitler's vegetable garden. Overall, Lovell hoped that Hitler would eat the tainted vegetables and experience several physiological changes. He hoped his breasts would swell, that his mustache would fall out, that his voice would rise to a soprano register. Supposedly, this would be so humiliating that Hitler would kill himself or something. Now, I hope I don't have to point out how dumb this all is. But Lovell's plan got far enough along to where he actually bribed one of Hitler's gardeners and handed the hormones over. Ultimately, though, nothing came of the plot. As Lovell later admitted, I can only assume that the gardener took our money and threw the syringes and medications into the nearest thicket. Despite such howlers, psychologists continued to scrutinize political leaders from afar over the next few decades. In 1964, Fact magazine polled nearly 1,200 psychiatrists about Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater. The resulting story claimed that the psychiatrist found Goldwater mentally unfit for the White House. Goldwater later sued the magazine for libel and won. The fiasco then led the American Psychological Association to institute the so-called Goldwater Rule. This rule ethically bars psychologists from diagnosing prominent figures unless they have personally examined them during a therapy session. Not that the rule has stopped the practice. As American politics has gotten more heated and nasty over the past two decades, many mental health professionals have violated the rule and weighed in on the mental fitness of Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and others. It never stops. Some psychologists argue that they can't help themselves. They see potential political crises looming, and they think that stopping these crises should override the Goldwater rule. Meanwhile, defenders of the rule argue that weighing in on political matters makes mental health workers look like partisan hacks. It undermines their credibility. Worse, demanding that someone step down from office due to a psychological disorder inadvertently promotes the stereotype that mental disorders are terrible, shameful afflictions. This also implicitly pushes the idea that people with mental disorders cannot possibly do their jobs. Diagnosing people from afar with mental disorders is all the more dangerous because mental disorders are highly dependent on culture and can shift from one era to the next. As a stark example of this, consider one Soviet psychiatrist from the 1980s. This psychiatrist was convinced that the new Soviet premier, Mikhail Gorbachev, was obviously mentally ill. After all, what else could explain the radical reforms that Gorbachev was pushing through? Didn't he know that he was harming the strongest, most powerful nation on Earth? <laughs> the man was clearly psychopathic. Only after the Soviet Union collapsed a few years later did the psychiatrist realize that she was the one with the skewed perspective.
Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Again, psychologists say they diagnose politicians from afar to help avert potential crises. But with Darwin and others, the motivations for retro-diagnosing them are not so clear. The diagnoses probably stem in part from our obsession with celebrities. It's respectable gossip. It's also partly a pedantic impulse to know every last thing about a famous person's life. A more important question, however, is what insight doctors and historians are hoping to gain. If we could prove that artist X or King Y really did have such and such an ailment, how much would we really learn? In some cases, arguably a lot. Take Akhenaten, an Egyptian pharaoh from around 1300 BC. Akhenaten is best known today as the father of King Tut and husband of Queen Nefertiti. But his life has fascinated Egyptologists for centuries. Amid fierce opposition, Akhenaten remade Egyptian society from top to bottom. Most importantly, he instituted radical new religious practices into an ultra-conservative society. Some scholars have called him history's first monotheist for his elevation of the Egyptian sun god above all other deities. Akhenaten also changed Egyptian art. In murals and reliefs from Akhenaten's time, the birds, fish, hunting game, and flowers start to look realistic for the first time. So do everyday people. It's a powerful new style of artistic achievement. But other art from this era looks bizarre even alien, especially depictions of Akhenaten himself and his family. In statues and reliefs, Akhenaten's face and body often appear grotesque and distorted. Archaeologists describing these portrayals sometimes sound like crude carnival barkers. One promises that you'll recoil from this epitome of physical repulsiveness. Another calls him a humanoid praying mantis. Now, these archaeologists were probably trying to be provocative, but other archaeologists have noticed odd traits as well. An almond-shaped head, 
spidery arms, chicken legs with backwards bending knees, Botox lips, a concave chest, a pendulous pot belly, and on and on. These works are the anti-David, the anti-Venus de Milo of art history. These depictions are even stranger when you consider that Akhenaten is the pharaoh. He can have himself portrayed however he wants, as a mighty Achilles or a beautiful Adonis. Yet he chooses to have himself look like this? To look bizarre and alien? Why would he do that? Scratching their heads over this, some archaeologists have suggested that Akhenaten perhaps suffered from a genetic disorder, some of which can produce unusual body shapes. And frankly, a genetic disorder is not a bad guess. Incestuous relationships often produce offspring with birth defects, and there was plenty of incest in pharaonic lines. But however suggestive, these diagnoses suffered from a dearth of evidence. Some clarity finally arrived in 2007, when the Egyptian government allowed scientists to withdraw DNA from five generations of royal mummies, including Akhenaten. When combined with CT scans of the corpses, this genetic work helped scientists investigate what, if any, disorders Akhenaten might have suffered from. Overall, the study turned up no major defects in Akhenaten or his family. This implies that the Egyptian royals looked like normal people. This also in turn means that portraits of Akhenaten, which sure don't look normal, probably were not striving for realism. They were probably propaganda. Akhenaten apparently decided that his status as pharaoh lifted him so far above the normal human rabble like you and me that he had to inhabit a whole new type of body in public portraits. Some of Akhenaten's strange features, like a distended belly, also call to mind fertility deities. So perhaps he wanted to portray himself as the womb of Egypt's well-being. Overall, then, learning more about the medical status of Akhenaten has shed genuine light on his era's political and artistic practices. It's pretty cool stuff. In other cases, however, the value of retrodiagnoses is far less clear. Multiple doctors and historians have speculated that Abraham Lincoln might have had Marfan's syndrome. That's partly because Lincoln's tall, gaunt physique and spidery limbs look classically Marfan. But let's say that geneticists extracted some Lincoln DNA and tested it. They could easily do this from one of the bloody artifacts that were saved from the night Lincoln was shot. And let's say that the DNA proves Lincoln had Marfan syndrome. So what? Would knowing this really illuminate Lincoln the man? Would we really understand anything more about his era or the decisions he made if we could diagnose him 150 years after his death? And in Lincoln's case, the medical sleuths would at least have a clear hypothesis to refute or confirm. Most cases of attempted diagnoses resemble Darwin's case, where there's a constellation of symptoms, and we don't know which are important and which aren't. And the farther back you go, the harder things get. In classical times, symptoms were sometimes recorded dozens or even hundreds of years after the person died, making them as much legend as fact. There's no guarantee the symptoms were recorded accurately either, especially if there was not a doctor around. There are also ethical concerns about scrutinizing people's medical histories. Some retrodiagnosers have argued that historians already scour people's diaries and letters, and that examining medical records or taking genetic samples simply extends this license a little further. But the analogy does not quite hold. 
especially with genetics. That's because DNA can reveal things that not even the person in question knew about. Perhaps that's not so terrible if they're safely dead. But living descendants might not appreciate their health history being outed. Now, pointing out the flaws in the field of retrodiagnoses will almost certainly not curb the practice. New papers appear all the time. Some brave souls even extrapolate from the diagnoses to make sweeping, counterfactual claims. They argue that such and such an illness explains the genesis of a war or the production of an artistic masterpiece. Heck, I've even done this myself. Remember my story about Claude Monet and his cataracts? And honestly, unlike in psychology, there is little downside to speculating about a historical celebrity's health. So a Goldwater rule that bans retrodiagnosing probably is not in order. But a little humility might be. The mystery of what ailed Darwin and so many others is one we'll likely have to live with forever. This is the Disappearing Spoon Podcast, brought to you by the Science History Institute. Find out more about their library, museum, and multimedia magazine at sciencehistory.org. Make sure you check out the Science History Institute's other awesome podcast, Distillations. You can find their in-depth narrative stories and interviews about everything from space junk to sex, drugs, and migraines anywhere you get your podcast and on their website, distillations.org. You can find more incredible stories from my books at samkeen.com. You can also book me as a speaker at your school or event. If you like this podcast, please support it at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. It costs as little as seven cents per day. You can also get bonus episodes and signed books. Please spread the word to others as well and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places. This episode was written by me, Sam Keen. It was mixed by Jonathan Pfeffer and produced by Mariel Carr, Rigoberto Hernandez, and Padmini Raghunath.